Eagles Entertainment. The journey of the draft is driven by AAA. AAA, roadside is their strong side. Make AAA a part of your game day today. AAA, go ahead. With the 25th pick in the NFL draft, the Philadelphia Eagles select. You're listening to the Journey to the Draft podcast, driven by AAA. Welcome to the Journey to the Draft podcast, driven by AAA. I'm Fran Duffy, and we're just about a week away from the 2020 NFL Draft. It's going to be unlike any other NFL Draft uh, that we've ever seen before, obviously due to the circumstances surrounding the country and surrounding the world right now. But look, it's going to be a really fun event to follow next week. I'm really excited about it. I don't know if you've seen the updated broadcast information, what it's going to look like. ESPN and NFL Network kind of joining forces here for this broadcast. It's going to be different. It's going to be unique. They're going to make it fun. It's going to be very, very fun to follow this along. But this week on the show, we're going to look. We're going to hit on some of the latest rumors, some of the notes, the news, the nuggets going around the NFL in regards to the NFL draft. So we'll dive in to some articles from Peter King. We'll dive into some news from Mel Kuyper, from Daniel Jeremiah. We're going to go kind of around the gamut here. Dane Brugler released a seven-round mock draft, so we'll break that down. A lot of things that we're going to hit on, and then we're going to wrap up our position superlatives, all that in Draft Buzz with Chris McPherson and Ben Fennell. After that, pick six. We're going to talk about six rumors we're buying stock in right now uh, around the NFL draft. And then we've got some questions from you guys at home in our draft mailbag. So all that being said, let's get into this now. It's time for Draft Buzz. Now it's time for Draft Buzz. All right, guys, as I welcome in Chris McPherson and Ben Fennell. Guys, I'll start it off as I have the last few weeks. How's everything in uh, Casa de McPherson and Casa de Fennell? You know, I, I really feel, not just for you, Fran, because I, I know you got a little Francis, but for all the, the parents who are working from home and, and managing children and their full-time jobs, fortunately, my two boys, Julian and Carter, are old enough that they're pretty much self-sufficient, but there are times where I say to myself, I am very fortunate that they are not four years old or, or little infants where you really have to be monitoring them around the clock. And I think it makes you appreciate teachers uh, that much more yeah. during this, this time. So that's the, the biggest takeaway for me as we get into draft week. Ben, we've got some sunshine today. Yeah, I see that out there. I'm starting to get a little restless here. <laughs> <laughs> and the only time I really have to reflect on it is when you you bring the attention to it at the top of the show. And I'm like, how is my life? Oh, actually, it's been kind of crappy. Thanks for bringing it up, Fran. <laughs> well, the sun's out. You know, it's not windy today. You can go out. You can. Uh, yeah, but we had rain last night. So that means yeah. all the sticks in the wood saturated. Things are wet out there. It's muddy. I don't know if I'm going to be able to get the fire going until at least like three or four today. It's a rough life, man. It's a rough this, life. These are, the, these are the, the battles I'm going through <laughs> on Wednesday afternoons. <laughs> all right. Well, let's get into this. Before we jump into Through the Grapevine, real quickly, I just kind of want to talk through uh, what next week's going to look like for us here on the Journey of the Draft podcast, driven by AAA. Monday, we're going to have our mock draft extravaganza, one of my favorite shows to put together every single year. The three of us, we're going to kind of go around the league. We're going to pick, make all 32 selections, but we're not going to be the ones making the picks. We are reaching out to local beat writers, local experts, some national people as well to make the picks based off of their expertise of that individual team. So it's going to be a lot of fun kind of diving around. We're going to try and create as accurate a mock draft as possible during the week of the draft. So we'll hit on that on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. Excited to welcome in NFL film senior producer Greg Cosell. We'll hit on that offense on Tuesday, defense on Wednesday. We're going to go rapid fire, hit on as many players as possible uh, with Greg, kind of get his takes. Obviously, the three of us 
we'll share our, our insights on those players as well. But just a final way to kind of look at this class, and we'll do that with Greg on Tuesday and Wednesday next week. For the first time ever as well, we will also be doing a nightly podcast, just little nightly recaps of what we see from the Eagles in the draft. So we'll hit Woo! on that Thursday night, Friday night, Saturday night, throughout draft weekend as well. So a lot of action we'll be bringing up to you uh, right here on this feed. So make sure, obviously, if you're not already subscribed, make sure you subscribe and you don't miss anything next week for the week of the draft. All right, guys, uh, let's get to through the grapevine here. First item, Mel Kuyper released his mock draft, and it is out. He had Henry Ruggs from Alabama falling to the Eagles at 21, perhaps most, you know, maybe even more interesting. He's the fourth receiver off the board, Justin Jefferson from LSU, the third receiver off the board ahead of him. Usually we don't see Henry Ruggs fall to 21. And on top of that, for Justin Jefferson to go ahead of him, I think it's very interesting. C-Mac, what, what is your big takeaway when you see that from Mel Kuyper? So if you're the Eagles, you don't have to give up any draft capital. You get a receiver who most put in the top three with Judy and Lamb, and you inject a high-octane playmaker into the offense. Now, I'm sure a lot of people are thinking, why would Jefferson go before Ruggs? One reason could be production. Jefferson tied for the FBS lead in receptions a year ago. But last week, we were talking about receiver superlatives, and I said Ruggs was my player, my day one receiver with the most upside because of that speed and that vertical threat ability. And Jefferson still showed enough speed at the combine. He has an inside-outside versatility. So he may appeal more to certain teams because of that, and he has a little bit of the bigger body. But to me, if you're the Eagles, and everyone knows that all the mocks have been having the Eagles going for a receiver, most likely it's been a receiver or, or linebacker there at 21, to not have to move up and to be able to get a player of Ruggs' caliber uh, with that ability to take the top off a of defense to me the big thing is that you know i think we all are, are so quick to say oh well the top three receivers are jerry judy henry ruggs and c lamb in some order those are the top three and i think that this is just an example of that's not always the case when you look at you know all 32 teams are going to have these receivers stocked differently and when you look at Justin Jefferson or Brandon Ayuk and you know some people feel, feel like Denzel Mims or KJ Hamler T Higgins you throw all these guys in there Rugs or Lamb or Judy may not be in the top three receivers for some teams and so uh, as the saying goes it only takes one to feel that oh we like Justin Jefferson more than Henry Ruggs or we like KJ Hamler more than CD Lamb or we like this guy more than you know all it takes is one team and now one of those players is falling down. And so, that, you know, but that's the, the beauty of following the NFL draft. Ben, obviously, I know you are in full agreement with that. Yeah, absolutely. But these two prospects have kind of swapped, uh, you know, and passed each other in the night for some reason through this whole draft cycle. I don't know what the questions were around Justin Jefferson coming off to the season, but I think some people thought he was more of a manufactured touch guy and he wasn't going to run particularly well and shows up to Indy and runs 4-4 and, now everybody's saying, oh, Henry Ruggs is the manufactured touch guy, and he's a raw route runner and has a lot of things to still learn as far as his uh, route running ability to get on the field on Sundays. But uh, I still think he has just as much upside and his value as a gadget player to stretch the field not only vertically but horizontally like we're seeing everybody do across the NFL. I think that would be a great pick for Doug Peterson's offense, just like the way, you know, McCole Hardman and Tyreek Hill fit into Andy Reid's offense. That's similar type of use and a similar type of scheme. 
Sure. I think really all of those guys obviously bring supreme talent. And there's a bunch of other guys, a bunch of other talented receivers that really excite me with this transition to the NFL. All right, guys, let's get to the next one here. Uh, Peter King on his Monday morning column, Football Week in America, you know, went through the draft order and provided some nuggets on a bunch of teams. And here's what I'm thinking is just kind of go four nuggets at a time. I'll read through a couple you know, some of the highlights here. You pick one that stood out to you from each group of four. And we'll kind of we'll hash it out a little bit. So first one, uh, Cincinnati, he said, unlikely to trade out of that top pick. Not too much of a surprise. Uh, Washington, no one thinks they pick anybody but Chase Young. Not much of a surprise there. Detroit Lions, defensive player or trade down. Could be Jeff Akuda or Derek Brown. Uh, they seem to be Matt Patricia types. But how about this idea from one general manager on Saturday? This is from the column. Said, I bet 40% of teams in the league have C.J. Henderson higher on their boards than Jeffrey Akuda. He's a better cover guy. Hmm. So that's interesting. Uh, I thought that was a, a really cool nugget there from Peter King. And then the last one, the Giants. Hard to see Dave Gettleman go anywhere but tackle in this urgent draft for the G-men. So, uh, C-Mac, I go to you. Is there anything that stands out from the, those first four nuggets there from Peter King? Well, you brought this up when we were evaluating the evaluators with the Giants that Dave Gettleman in his years with Carolina and his couple of years with the, with the Giants has never taken an offensive lineman in the first round. Not that that'll preclude him from doing so here. It's just an interesting fact here to take into consideration. Ben, I thought it was really interesting that the note on C.J. Henderson is how he bets 40% of teams in the league have Henderson higher on their boards than Akuda. And I guess it goes to the point I made in that last nugget about, you know, Justin Jefferson over Henry Ruggs. Every team sees all these players differently. And, you know, it might not be exactly what the consensus is uh, amongst the media. But uh, we know C.J. Henderson, we've talked about him a lot on this podcast, extremely talented player. You know, I don't know what Jeffrey Okuda really did from the end of the season to right now for anybody to question what, you know, why he wouldn't be cornerback number one. I think C.J. Henderson's a really talented player with a good upside in a man coverage scheme. He's going to lock down the perimeter for somebody. But what has Jeffrey Okuda done to question anything that he shouldn't be the first corner off the board? I think he's scheme versatile. I'm quickly going through my notes here to see if there's any red flags, cons. Did he have a bad tape? You know, the Wisconsin game, I guess, was his worst uh, tape as a Buckeye. But he's done nothing wrong to uh, insinuate he will not be the first corner off the board. You know, the, what I read into that is mainly would Detroit feel comfortable trading down and missing on Akuda? You know, if they feel like, hey, maybe C.J. Henderson and Nakuda are very close and we're happy picking up, you know, an extra two, an extra one, whatever it is, to say, okay, we'll pass on Akuda get the extra ammunition, and get C.J. Henderson. That, to me, is what I kind of read into that nugget. Or, of course, it could be somebody uh, trying to feed that to Peter King to maybe drum up some interest uh, in a C.J. Henderson to you know, allow somebody else to follow them. So, uh, obviously, look, all kinds of smoke being thrown around this time of year. All right, next four bullet points here, uh, rounding out the top ten. Miami, Peter King says, I hear that Chris Greer and Brian Flores are very much against trading the farm to move up to get Joe Burrow, which some in the organization – want to do. He also talked about Chris Greer being in Miami when they passed on Drew Brees in free agency, but also coming from Bill Parcell's school of availability 
being the most important ability. So some conflicting opinions in the building about, you know, whether, whether it's Justin Herbert or Tua Tonga-Vailoa or obviously the move up for Joe Burrow. It seemed that there was some buzz a couple weeks ago that, you know, maybe they would be able to make a move up, package a few picks there to move up to number one. Obviously, like he said at the top, Cincinnati unlikely to trade off of that spot. So uh, that's interesting stuff there from Miami. With the Chargers, a quarterback or a long-term tackle makes the most sense. A GM friend of Tom Telesco's thinks that he's very high on Justin Herbert, but head coach Anthony Lynn is bullish on Tyrod Taylor and maybe for more than just one year. He also called Tom Telesco a top five poker player general manager in the league. I thought that was a cool nugget. Jacksonville, he hears not quarterback for the Jaguars. The quote was, they really want to give Gardner Minshew a real shot. One friend of Caldwell was able to give that quote. And then the defensive impact player, like a Swiss Army knifeish Isaiah Simmons, makes sense for the Jaguars. This isn't from Peter King, but I keep an eye out for them uh, with a trade down as well with the Jaguars. And then last one here, uh, Andrew Berry in Cleveland, uh, number one, good friend of Joe Thomas and saw his value in his previous Cleveland tenure. Number two, was most recently schooled in the Eagles ethos of when in doubt, take an offensive lineman. And number three, uh, sees a tackle position, obviously on the Browns uh, in tatters. And number four, he watches the Browns in 2019, saw Baker Mayfield running for his life. How does Barry not take one of the four hot prospect offensive tackles right here? There's a quote, though, said, I agree, one Browns watcher said uh, from another team, but they love that Boise tackle, and maybe they think they can get him in the second round. Obviously talking about Ezra Cleveland, uh, the athletic offensive tackle from the Boise State Broncos. So, uh, C-Mac, I'll come to you. Of those four nuggets, there's interesting stuff there from that group of teams. Anything that particularly stands out in your end? For me, it's the shadow of Drew Brees. And yeah. how is that going to loom over the draft? And it was fascinating that Pierre King brought up that Chris Greer was with the team in 2006 when that decision was made to go with Dante Culpepper over signing Drew Brees. And we know how that changed the fortunes for not just the Dolphins franchise, the Saints franchise, but the University of Alabama football team. What's interesting to me is that with Miami having three first-round picks, to me, it's almost like whichever way they decide to go at quarterback at five, they can potentially soften the blow of a potential miss. And knowing that Flores is coming from the New England School of Philosophy, you want to have as many picks as possible, that you can almost build the rest of the team well enough to hopefully mitigate that if that first-round pick, that quarterback doesn't pan it as expected, that you still have a good team around it. Yeah, Fran, I think it's most interesting just to see who feels most comfortable with their quarterback room right now that they don't feel desperate or potentially if they don't fall in love with one of the top prospects this year? Jacksonville obviously alluding to wanting to give Gardner Minshew a shot. The Chargers have Tyrod Taylor, who seems to be, you know, the incumbent starter behind Phillip Rivers there. The question is Miami. They have Ryan Fitzpatrick. They have Josh Rosen. They have a quarterback room to survive the season. What if there's a chance, you know, they really aren't, falling in love with one of these kids that they'd rather bolster the offensive line, add some weapons on this offense and potentially look to a Trevor Lawrence or a Justin Fields next year, which is another deep kind of quarterback group. So I think it's really interesting to look at those three teams, how they feel about their quarterback room and if they are potentially content with who they have as the incumbent starter. 
The other thing with Cleveland potentially addressing a tackle, everybody knows they need a left tackle after Joe Thomas. What type of tackle are they going to use, though, with that offense? Baker Mayfield, a guy that likes to hold on to the ball, a little bit more mobile. Do you want a more athletic tackle? You now have Alex Van Pelt from the kind of Green Bay tree of outside zones. So do you want a tackle that's a little bit more, you know, light on his feet in the zone scheme as opposed to a big mauler? So I think the scheme fit and the play profile of what tackle Cleveland's going to address is really interesting as well. Uh, to me, like I feel like you look at Tristan Wirfs, you know, is he the you know that kind of guy for them? But but again, it's going to be very interesting to see which direction they ultimately go. Uh, I think that's a good point on your end. All right, so let's go to the next one here. New York Jets big needs are an offensive tackle, wide receiver, and pass rusher. Joe Douglas, the general manager with a six-year contract, knows that there is not a pass rusher worthy of the pick here, and he knows he can get a first-round caliber wideout at forty-eight in the second round. He sees best value by far here at tackle. If a value player like Makai Becton or Andrew Thomas is still on the board, I'm betting offensive tackle here for the Jets. So interesting, pretty uh, you know strong take there um, from Peter King that it's an offensive tackle for New York. Uh, number two here, Las Vegas. Uh, John Gruden's been grousing that he does not have a home run playmaker at wideout. Mike Mayock wants clean character guys. C.D. Lamb seems pretty logical. I would throw in, I think, Henry Ruggs also kind of fits that mold as well. Certainly Jerry Judy uh, as well. So all three of those receivers. I really feel like, you know, wide receiver for sure to Las Vegas at at pick 12. That's just my feel. San Francisco, Javon Kinlaw, another defensive lineman in the first round. It sounds crazy. Maybe it is. But after all the first round defensive line capital that the 49ers have used up, but Peter King hears that the Niners are desperate for a space-eating defensive tackle who can threaten the pocket, and that's what Kinlaw does. Uh, interesting note there. I still – I just really feel like it could be a receiver. And they're still – they're doing a lot of work, it seems. I don't know if you guys have been following who is meeting with who, who's chatting with who. They seem to be chatting up a lot of these big receivers, you know, the Rugs, the Lambs, and the, and the uh, Judys as well. So uh, I'd keep an eye out for receiver there for San Francisco, something we've talked about for the last few weeks. And then last one, Atlanta, desperate for some edge presence. Atlanta signed Dante Fowler in free agency. Dimitrov could double dip with the second best edge rusher in the draft with Calevon Chasen. And real quickly, my, my big takeaway from that is that last one. Remember last year, Atlanta double dipped when they went heavy on offensive line. They signed a couple of free agents. You know, it's not like they were uh, home run signings, but guys that they felt could come in and start. And then what did they do in the draft? They drafted two offensive linemen in the first round on top of those guys. So, no, I, C-Mac, you've made this point previously. Just because they signed Dante Fowler does not mean, uh, oh, yeah, cross off, you know, Caleb on Chasen or anybody else uh, off the edge for this group. That was my big takeaway. C-Mac, what was your big takeaway from that group of points? To me, it's the Niners, and you kind of touched on this, how the Niners are the wild card because offensive tackle, I think, is still in the, in the picture for them. The thing with the receiver is, does Kyle Shanahan say, all right, you give me one of the big three and we'll, we'll go to bat and give Jimmy Garoppolo another home run threat? Or does he say, you know, I can wait and get a Jalen Rager or a Lynn Bowden type and scheme those guys open into the offense? So that, I think the, the Niners being the wild card there, even though I know Pierre King was very adamant that they're going Javon Kinlaw, it seems like the Niners could still go in a couple ways, especially on the offensive side. Ben, what was your big takeaway there? I just think of looking at the 49ers coming off of the Super Bowl loss, obviously re-geared to, uh, you know, be a contending team once again. Just how flexible they can be in this draft, I think, is a scary proposition. The fact going into the draft with a really well-built roster, 
I think it's just terrifying that they could kind of see how the board falls to them. If they get, you know, maybe a, one of these top flight receivers or a top flight interior defensive tackle like Kinlaw, or maybe a tackle of the future. They had tackle issues last year, had to survive half the season with two backups at left and right tackle there. I just think that's a really scary proposition when that's a really good competitive roster right now. And then they're going to potentially get a number one or a number two at three big-time positions, interior defensive tackle, offensive tackle, or receiver. That's just a really scary proposition to, to kind of bolster an already dangerous team. And this is a team that does not have a ton of ammo coming in. So I got to feel that they're trading out of one of those two spots as well, whether it's 13 or 31, maybe even both. Uh, I think they only have four picks, I think, in this draft, maybe five. So uh, that's certainly a team that I would count on moving off of one of those two spots by the time it's all said and done. All right, uh, final five points here that we're going to hit on from Peter King. Dallas, the quote is, it's too high for a center, said one personnel man, but they love the Michigan center, Cesar Ruiz, and they could trade down a few spots and still be sure of getting him. That there's an interesting plug-and-play air to Travis Frederick. Next one from Las Vegas again. Mike Mayock won't be able to pass on C.J. Henderson if he's there, and he would not be surprised with a Raiders trade-up for him especially after they've uh, missed on Eli Apple, failing his physical, and the Raiders obviously got outbid on Byron Jones as well. That's a good point from Peter King, I think, in terms of the corner position being important. A lot of people have plugged uh, A.J. Terrell in there for the Las Vegas Raiders, so certainly something to keep an eye on. Philadelphia, what he talked about with the Eagles, he said, Mox from Caribou to Carlsbad will give Philly a wide receiver, and I probably will too a week from today. Give me some time on that one. So Peter King will drop his last mock draft on Monday. And then last, uh, the couple more here, New England. The quote is, they love Justin Herbert, but enough to trade up for him. One rival general manager said, the Pats do have 12 picks. That's the second most in this draft. I will say most of them are on day three. They don't have a lot of top 100 picks in this group. If they want Justin Herbert, they likely have to be willing to part with 2021 first rounder uh, and a trove of picks. Uh, after losing out on Hayden Hurst in their latest hunt for a tight end, no way the Pats could reach for versatile Notre Dame or Cole Komet here to solve the tight end problem, is there? So a couple interesting possibilities there for the Patriots. And then last one here, Seattle. Best quote that he mined from last week from an AFC general manager said, only two things are sure in this draft. Joe Burrow to the Bengals and John Schneider trades down in the first round. This is almost as crazy as the Dave Gettleman never trading down once. So in the eight drafts since 2012, John Schneider has traded his first round pick every year and twice in 2017 and 2019. So eight first rounds, 10 trades, whatever happens on draft weekend, my money is on Schneider to add a pass rusher, probably Jadavian Clowney or Everson Griffin in the next two weeks. So Big takeaways there. Uh, C-Mac, what, what was your their biggest one? So for me, I was looking at the possibility, could the Patriots really make this move up for Herbert? And the, the one trade that I went back and looked at was Atlanta. Back in 2011, Thomas Dimitrov going from 27 to 6 for Julio Jones. And the price really wasn't all that exorbitant. It was two firsts, a second, and two fourth-round picks. You brought up the point, Fran, that while the Patriots do have a ton of picks in this year's draft, there's no second-round picks. You're looking early in the draft, they have their first-round selection and three third-rounds. The team that I would be intrigued by to watch would be Detroit at number three because of the Matt Patricia-Bob Quinn connection. Again, going to the philosophy of knowing the Patriots, they're going to miss on, on certain guys that – you have to be so, so, so right 
to think that you're going to go all the way up there and mortgage so many picks to get the guy, especially when there's been a lot of buzz all offseason about Jared Siddham and their faith in, in him and wanting him to develop, even though they're most likely going to bring in some sort of competition. The only quarterback I feel kind of that I would match with the Patriots, and Ben, I, I'd like to get your thoughts on this. The only one that I feel from this group that I'd say, oh, yeah, because Burrow's gone, take Joe Burrow out of it, is Tua. Like, you know, because I, I do feel that Tua has the best chance of all of them to drop a little bit further. I don't think Herbert's falling out of the top five, top six. Um, I still believe Jordan Love is still going to go in the top 10, top 12. To me, like, Tua with the injuries, especially with everything going on, like, to me, like, that's the one that I wonder, like, all right, if he falls, you know, even if it's not all the way down to 23, if he falls to 17 or 16 or 19 or 20, do the Patriots then make that move up and maybe secure that? We know about the relationship between Bill Belichick and Nick Saban. Tua, I feel like, has that in terms of the decision-making and quick release. He's not the biggest arm, but certainly more than enough uh, to fit what Bill Belichick looks for. I just feel that Tua is the guy that kind of fits what you know what Bill Belichick and, and that offense have, have had over the last two decades plus with Tom Brady. You know, it's really interesting to study this team because they haven't been in the quarterback market, but they kind of have, and they do have a type. And you know who my comp for Jake Fromm is? He reminds me a lot of Jimmy Garoppolo. Mm. And I think there's some guys like Jake Fromm and Jalen Hurts that might appeal a little bit more on the back end of round one, maybe early day two, to go get one of those guys with a lot of experience. Obviously, smart players have some limitations physically, but I think New England's okay with the physical limitations and they'd obviously rather, you know, a guy with the experience and the kind of senior presence uh, like Fromm and Hertz have. It's going to be very interesting to see how this whole quarterback uh, shuffle goes uh, next week at the draft. And real quick, Fran, I think it's also interesting just for a fun kind of uh, exercise. What if Las Vegas double dips at one of these positions, potentially taking right, two right. corners or two receivers? Uh, you know, obviously some teams aren't shy about just lighting up scoreboards these days, like San Fran and and the Chiefs and the Rams, and maybe to bolster that offensive firepower. Whether it's going to be Derek Carr or Marcus Mariota, the future there, their receiver position is kind of dwindling right now. They have Zay Jones, Tyrell Williams. They got Nelson Aguilar in free agency, which is a good addition. But outside of that, not a whole lot of juice or upside with young guys. So if they could walk out of here with a C.D. Lamb at 11 and maybe Ruggs at 19, man, that's a wild proposition to think about. To me, like the, the wow factor of that would make them like, you know, everybody's big winner of the draft for sure. Uh, you know, coming out of it. And I also think 19 has great value. I think someone's going to come and really offer something to the Raiders at 19, which we see a lot of movement around 17 to 25 the past couple of years in that mid to late area of the first round, where if somebody's overvalued on their board and they want to go trade up and get them, I think 19 is a nice spot to maybe get out of that position and add a late one and a day two. Yeah, pick. that's, that's, uh, that's a good point. I like that. Um, all right, guys, next point here. Uh, this is just a, a quick news item. Zach Bond, the linebacker from Wisconsin, uh, tested positive for a diluted urine sample at the combine. Now, Zach Bond sent a letter to every team, all 32 clubs, explaining that it was due to all the water he drank before the weigh-in and that diluted the sample. Uh, C-Mac, you and I have joked in the past at Senior Bowl and at, at Combine about you know how much water those guys drink just to add on a couple pounds. It looks like that came back to bite, Zach Bond. The thing here is – I think we talked about this around the combine is that you see a pl the players doing a lot of water intake to try to get those weight numbers up. The one thing with Bond is that 
Schefter in his report noted that it's not going to be punished in the new collective bargaining agreement. Joe Thomas, the future Hall of Fame left tackle from the Browns, he was hit for a diluted sample of the combine, and he actually criticized the league on Twitter saying that because of the amount of water that players are taking during this time, these tests, these dilute samples should not be as much of a surprise. So I think the prevailing thought is that Bond, who is getting into mock drafts late first round, it's not really going to hurt his draft stock, especially since he's being forthright uh, with teams. I, I don't imagine that this will have a, a huge, huge impact. I don't think it'll move the needle too much on Zach Bond's overall draft stock. All right, guys, let's go to our superlatives over the last couple of weeks. We've, uh, you know, gone, kind of gone position by position, offering fans a little bit of a preview today. And we're going to do our, our last three, and we're going to start with quarterback, the best arm, best arm talent of the quarterback room on day one. C-Mac, we'll go to you. So day one, I'm pretty much sticking with the core four guys or the quarterbacks here. And for best arm, I'm going with Justin Herbert. Jordan Love, very easy thrower of the football, but we got to see, Fran, you and I saw both he and Love up close at the Senior Bowl, and I thought that Herbert had the upper hand in this area. Even though I do like Love's ability to throw with anticipation, that caught my eye down in Mobile. But also, when you look at the combine measurements where they measure your throwing speed, Herbert topped out Love here as well. So, And as much as Burrow is going to go number one and Tua is a very, very gifted passer, arm strength isn't uh, the elite traits when you look at the two of them. So for the best arm of the, the ones that we're expecting to go day one here, I went with Justin Herbert of Oregon. All right, if I could just throw this out there, Fran, I have to be much more precise than you two here. I got to find a day two player. That's either round two or round three. That means you get round four to priority free agent. C-Mac gets the top of the mountain. I got to make sure I'm picking those guys that aren't too good but aren't going to fall to day three. So I really got to be precise in hitting these picks here on day two. That has been the general theme for the last three weeks or so, but yeah. It's all right. It's all right. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to name myself for best accuracy next, next uh, category here. But best arm on day two, I think this was one of the easier picks here. Jacob Eason, huge arm, obviously. That's probably yeah. his one redeeming trait, redeeming quality. That's why he gets all the Jay Cutler type of, uh, you know, comps and vibes from him he threw the ball 63 miles an hour at the combine and the miles per hour test which is really impressive a lot more under center stuff at washington when i go back and watch this tape so i really like him in that pro style system turning his back to the defense they really just need to limit this kid if you get him in a good play action shot play type of offense and you can kind of pull his reins back and play a little bit more like a matt schaub and, you know, don't always have to be a hero with that right arm, which is impressive, but it gets him into trouble as well. But obviously one of the more live, strong arms of this draft. Yeah, I, I think that was a slam dunk pick. For, for me, day three, I'm going to go with a guy we haven't talked about for a couple months here. Uh, was not invited to the combine. C-Mac, you and I saw him up live close uh, at the Shrine Bowl, and that's Tommy Stevens from Mississippi State. Penn State transfer, athletic kid, was used all over the field, uh, kind of as a Taysom Hill-type weapon for the Nittany Lions before transferring down with Joe Moorhead down to Mississippi State. But Stevens has a really impressive arm. You know, he can push the ball vertically down the field. He can fit it into a tight window. Obviously just needs to be reined in as a passer. Like, he's just not where he's only started nine, ten games in his entire career. So this is a guy that very, very green, but I think he's got some tools to work with. He's just, you know, he's going to need a lot, a lot of development to get there. So Tommy Stevens, my pick for best arm on day three. Let's go best accuracy and touch. I paired these two together. C-Mac, what do you got? Like this category here, and I'm going with the number one 
overall pick, Joe Burrow, and there are two throws that you need to go back and look at from the national championship game. First, the 52-yard touchdown to Jamar Chase. It was 40 yards in the air, pinpoint accuracy, beautiful touch on it. And then another touchdown, this was in the second quarter to Chase as well in the red zone, a 14-yard score where Burrow had to throw Chase open. There was no window. It wasn't like he has to see it before he rips it. He threw it perfectly in the backcourt in the end zone. Good coverage on the play, but still the touch was so spot on. So Joe Burrow gets my vote here for best accuracy and touch among the day one quarterbacks. All right, this one's a bit of a dice roll here, Fran. I'm not sure if he's going to squeeze into day two, but I'm going to hold out hope. He's a late round three pick. He's only a one-year starter, which is really interesting. But when you go and look at his tape, watch Anthony Gordon at a Washington State Ooh. who took over for Gardner Minshew in that air raid system of Mike Leach out there in Washington. When you put on his tape, I know it's a spread them out kind of, you know, point guard offense, but this guy had really good accuracy, really good touch, really good placement, the ability to layer throws with different trajectories, different velocities. I mean, 71% completions on nearly 700 pass attempts. I don't care if it's routes against air. That's really impressive. And I know they have a history of having accurate quarterbacks that never really panned out into the NFL but I thought he showed up to the senior bowl and looked comfortable looked confident and he's only a one-year player I think he has a lot to show and he could be a guy in training camp and in the preseason that kind of steals some headlines wherever he lands yeah that's a good pick uh, I know there are a lot of people that are big fans of Anthony Gordon for me uh day three I'm gonna go to, back to the Shrine Bowl uh my top quarterback from that game was James Morgan from FIU good size kid He's not the most athletic. I think his arm is solid. But to me, the biggest thing that stands out to me about him was his accuracy and his touch to all three levels of the field. Some shades of, of Nate Sudfeld. You know, some of the things I saw from Nate out in Indiana, I've kind of seen from James Morgan throughout the course of his college career. I think he has some, a similar kind of skill set to develop into a backup quarterback. So James Morgan, uh, my pick for best accuracy and touch on day three of this draft. Best mobility. C-Mac, we'll go to you for day one. I tried to give different player each of the accolades but in this case I'm going back to Justin Herbert I think Burrow is very underrated in this area but Herbert is going to give that dual threat dimension to whichever team that chooses him yes he is six foot six but he's athletic uh ran an unofficial sub four seven forty at the combine he's not a statue in the pocket and he actually is the last game of his career the Rose Bowl Wisconsin against Wisconsin had three rushing touchdowns in that contest so, Fran, my pick here, I think he's going to slide out of the first round and be one of the first selections on day two. And it's no secret who Jalen Hurts is coming from Alabama over to Oklahoma. His athleticism, his mobility, obviously his number one trait, showed up to the combine, really ran a really impressive 4.59 at 222 pounds. And I would go back and watch him. Uh, against Oklahoma two years ago when Tua was the starter in that championship game, or excuse me, the semifinal against Oklahoma. They ran some jet sweeps to him. They ran some wildcat plays where he had to meet Kenneth Murray one-on-one -on -one in the hole in the low red zone. This guy's got a lot of power, a lot of athleticism. I don't know if he's a down-to-down -down quarterback or not, but we've obviously seen enough of the Taysom Hills and the change of pace guys in the NFL that his skill set has a value. So whatever you want to call him, He's probably the most athletic day two quarterback, in my opinion. 
Mm, yeah, it's going to be interesting where he ends up going in this draft. Uh, my, for, for me, I'm going to go uh, to the senior bowl. Shea Patterson, look, there are issues with him as a passer, right? But I think when you look in terms of what are the traits that he can hang his hat on, his mobility, his ability to escape, he's an athletic kid. That's something that he certainly uh, has the ability to, to bust out uh, on the field at any point. Uh, was the number one dual-threat quarterback coming out of high school uh, a few years ago when he initially committed to Ole Miss and then obviously transferred up to Michigan. I think when you look at Shea Patterson, and his movement ability is something that, you know, that's a strength for him moving forward into the NFL. And Fran, just to, just to kind of paint Shea Patterson forward, yeah. my comp for him is Luke McCown, who also had, you know, that athletic upside. We all know he played some receiver in spot duty for the Lions early in his career, but has carved out, obviously, a pretty impressive career as a backup. That can be Shea Patterson. Obviously, a lot of talent, a lot of upside, a lot of athleticism. Let's see if he could kind of rein it in between the ears and carve out a good kind of backup role for somebody with that upside to maybe be a Wildcat quarterback and a change of pace like uh, like a Taysom Hill. That's what he's got to kind of bank on moving forward into the NFL for sure. All right, uh, that last one for quarterback. Best intangibles. C-Mac, we'll go with you. So, so hard to go between Joe Burrow and Tua Tungavailoa because I love Burrow, how he overcame struggles and injury in college, was a two-year captain at LSU. We know his run to the national championship, and and the way he embraced that LSU community was beautiful. But I went with Tua here. Came in as a true freshman to win off the bench to win the national title game for Alabama. This is a guy who's always cool, calm, and collected, sort of like Carson Wentz. He's deeply religious, and he's not someone I think you ever have to worry about off the field. And uh, this is from Dane Brugler's The Beast Draft Guide. Phenomenal read. Nick Saban is not someone who tosses bouquets around lightly, but he called Tua as important as any player that this program has ever had. So I went with Tua Tungavailoa as my player with the best intangibles, the quarterback on day one with the best intangibles. If he drops, he's a Patriot. I'm telling you, if he (laughs) drops, he's a Patriot. This one was pretty easy for me, Fran, and best intangibles is a day two player. I think he's going to be a third round pick, but Jake Fromm at the University of Georgia coming out as a junior feels like he's been there forever because he was a starter as a true freshman, taking them to the national championship game and really a couple of plays away from beating Alabama in that overtime that Tua stole the show. But I would challenge anybody to go watch QB1. I think it was season two on Netflix while you're in quarantine and watch a couple episodes of Jake Fromm in high school transitioning into college. Really, really impressive kid, both on the field and off the field. Great family, just really good head on his shoulders, excellent character, IQ, has a clear kind of conscious about his life and decision making. Just a really good kind of structured kid that you want to be around. He's really infectious. And it's no secret why he showed up to Georgia, was the immediate starter, you know, really kind of made Justin Fields transfer uh, to Ohio State because he was the incumbent starter there. But a guy that's played some good ball for Georgia and one of the more uh, intangibly kind of exciting players in this entire draft. For me, day three, I went Nate Stanley. Uh, I remember you guys know I love talking to players you know, at the Senior Bowl and the Shrine Bowl and the Combine about their teammates or their opponents. I was talking to Michael Ojemudia, the corner from Iowa, and I said, hey, who was the leader for Iowa? And I didn't even finish the sentence. And he said, Nate Stanley. And, I, and he was like, you know, three-year captain, set the tone for everybody, always kind of you – know, kind of some of the things that you talked about, C-Mac, with Tua in terms of like – very even keeled and always kind of, you know, right. Even when things weren't going right, he always, you know, kind of kept that same attitude, kept that same face for the guys on the sideline and always kind of inspired his teammates. So I went with Nate Stanley 
there for my pick on day three. All right, let's go to tra- tight end, guys. Best receiver, C-Mac, day one. This is, this is tough for C-Mac because not a lot of tight ends we're talking about here on day one. <laughs> well, that's the thing is there's probably not going to be a day one. So I'm kind of going in the mix here with Ben here. But I went with Adam Troutman out of Dayton. First team, Associated Press FCS All-American Selection, the Pioneer League Offensive Player of the Year. 70 receptions, 916 yards, 14 touchdowns. Finished his school as Dayton's all-time leading receiver. So I went with Adam Troutman as the best receiver of the quote-unquote day one tight ends here. So it's going to be interesting to see where these guys end up going up because it seems like the top of the class here will be day two. Yeah, absolutely. I don't have a round one grade on any tight end this year. I would not be shocked if there are zero tight ends going on day one of the draft. But I had a trouble picking between two tight ends here. I really like Bryson Hopkins out of Purdue. Productive player. Reminds me a lot of Zach Ertz here with the Philadelphia Eagles. But I'd be remiss to not pick. Harrison Bryant here at Florida Atlantic, really dominantly productive player and Lane Kiffin spread offense there at Florida Atlantic. Just throw on his numbers every season. Last year, 65 catches, 1,000 yards, you know, over 2,000 yards in his entire career, 16 touchdowns, 148 receptions. Now, he may not be a traditional wide tight end in the NFL, but he knows how to get open and catch the football in a, you know, a heavy pass offense there. So productive player, Harrison Bryant. For me, day three, I went with a guy I'm talking about best receiver. How about a guy who played receiver for uh, his career at LSU? And that's Stephen Sullivan. Uh, was a big-time receiver, a starting receiver uh, for that team early in his career. Made the transition this past season to more of a, an inside slot, you know, a big slot, and then goes to the senior bowl, plays as a tight end, you know, and didn't shy away from blocking drills and did a good job on contact. So I'm going to go Stephen Sullivan, a guy that can certainly get down the seam and make some plays in the passing game. Best blocker, C-Mac, will go with you for day one tight ends. So this is the loose slowly portion of the podcast. I went with UCLA's Devin Asiasi. Uh, go back to his high school days, played both tight end and defensive end, and a number of schools that wanted to play defensive end at the collegiate level, but he always wanted to be a tight end, and I think that toughness shows up. Now there's a lot of off-field maturity questions. Uh, he started in Michigan, only lasted one season, and transferred, had a three-game suspension at UCLA. So – there's a question to figure out there, but at least of this upper tier group, I think Devin Asiasi is a little underrated, under uh, going to the radar here, but I would put him as the best blocker of this group. Yeah, so there wasn't a whole lot of players to choose from here, Fran. This is the dominant uh, tight end group as far as the flex position, those bigger receivers that spend a lot of time in the slot. I wanted to go with Jared Pinkney out of Vanderbilt. He's 260 pounds, has experience putting his hand in the turf, but he only played eight games this year. So I'm going to go with Cold Net out of Notre Dame. Huge, huge, broad tight end, 262 pounds. Love his hand placement, runs his feet, blocking in the trenches there. Really does a good job of staying connected to blocks uh, with his balance there. He'll even come across the formation on some of those wham blocks and split zones and really kind of give it to uh, some edge players and uh, defensive ends. So I really like his size. Really isn't an A player in the pass game or blocking, but I think he's a B, B plus in both, which I think has a lot of upside and kind of resembles the same trajectory as like a George Kittle coming out of Iowa. That's a good point. For me, for day three, you know, I went with a guy that I know all three of us like, and that's Thaddeus Moss from LSU. To me, just a bulldog, you know, in the run game. He's good pass protector as well. Obviously his dad, a Hall of Fame receiver and Randy Moss, but 
this guy makes his bones you know, blocking. He, he's a really, really fun player to watch at the point of attack. So I went with Thaddeus Moss, very versatile player. Can be lined up in a number of different spots uh, and shows the ability to win as a blocker. All right, best technician, day one. C-Mac, what do you got? So Ben Tajam already, and my favorite tight end of this group, Harrison Bryant out of Florida Atlantic, the first non-power five player to win the Mackey Award. And, you know, going between technician, receiver, just the love the way that he sets up defenders, the way he runs his routes. And then going back to the combine, I thought his athletic and positional workouts were off the charts. So easily could have put him in the best receiver category. But I liked Harrison Bryant here for best technician. You know, I was going to go with uh, Devin Asiasi. You stole that one already. I just think he does a lot of things really well just from a fundamental standpoint. Really good getting off the ball, which helps him in blocking, helps him kind of roll off the line of scrimmage and threaten uh, defenders vertically immediately. But I'm going to go with Adam Trotman out of Dayton. And the reason I say he's the best technician, because he has to be. He doesn't have a whole lot of redeeming qualities. He's not the fastest. He's not the biggest. He's not the strongest. But the way they use him, it's all about being deliberate. A lot of pro-style elements. So a lot of play action concepts, three level stretches, play action boot concepts. They like leaking him vertically, a lot of double moves. So you have to be really deliberate and sell those, you know, the run action, sell the double moves. In order to do that, you have to be deliberate and you have to be a technician in understanding the pacing and setting up defenders. So a guy that looked really good in Indy running a 4'8 at 256 pounds, but not the biggest guy, not the strongest guy, not the fastest guy but a productive and a smart player. Some of the names I've written down, like a Tony Scheffler or an Anthony Fasano type of player that I think could be in this league for a good eight to 10 years. Uh, so for me, I, work, I went with Josiah DeGuara from Cincinnati. I think he's just a very sneaky player. Getting off the line of scrimmage, sneaky as a route runner. He's got some versatility to be able to line, line up in a number of spots. Can win as a receiver, as a blocker. He's a well-rounded player, competitive kid. I just think he's, the, you know, of the guys we're talking about on day three, I just feel like he's the savviest of that group at the tight end spot. All right, last one. Highest upside at tight end. Day one, C-Mac. I went with Missouri's Albert Okuwebenam. We look from a size standpoint, 6'5", 258 pounds, looks apart, chiseled, caught everyone's eyes in Indy with a 4.47 in the 40. Injuries limited his production at Missouri, but his ball skills are very good. So for biggest upside, I went with Albert Okuwebenam. Man, we're dialed in, C-Mac. That was going to be my pick as well. And I was going to challenge you, Fran, and say last summer or even the summer before that, Albert Oboikanam was the consensus tight end number one. Had a really dominant sophomore campaign with Drew Locke. Kind of dwindled a little bit in the remaining two years. But we're talking tight ends with really good size. I think there was only five or six tight ends over 255 pounds in Indianapolis. And the fact that he was 258, 6'5", ran a 4'49" and obviously has the experience with his hand in the turf. Uh, but just to throw in another name in here, I really like the upside of Dominic Wood Anderson, who was the number one JUCO tight end two years ago, went to the University of Tennessee. Good player, good size, 261 pounds, will get after you blocking a little bit, soft pillow hands, just obviously caught in kind of a dysfunctional Tennessee volunteer team the past two years. But I think he has some upside in the NFL. 
For me, I went with Giovanni Ricci, a player we got to see up close at the Shrine Bowl. I uh, oh, love that. Yeah, current converted receiver, uh, can work vertically down the field, can line up at, like, as an H-back, as a fullback, in line, in the slot. Shades of Trey Burton with Giovanni Ricci. I, I like Giovanni Ricci. I, I think he's got uh, some upside if you're talking about an, a, a day three pick, especially late in the draft. I, I'm a big fan of what this kid brings from Western Michigan. All right, let's lastly go to corner, guys. Best man-to-man ability. C-Mac, day one corner, best man-to-man cover. So it goes back to uh, top of the show, and we were talking about Peter King and his draft nuggets, and he talked about how some teams, he wouldn't be surprised, the one GM, that 40% of the teams have C.J. Henderson over Jeff Okuda. Just his athletic and position workouts at the Combine were just absolutely sensational, and you can see that cover man ability on his game tape. So to me, I know Jeff Okuda is going to be the top corner in this draft class in terms of where they're selected, but C.J. Henderson, just very, very good upside, and that athleticism just off the charts. All right, Fran, I was struggling between two guys here. I was going to go with Cameron Dantzler just because I can pronounce it better. Help me out here with the Auburn corner, Noah. Igbenogany. Right. Does he have a nickname yet? Are we calling him Iggy? We're calling him Noah. All right, we're going with Noah. <laughs> when you put on this kid's tape, man, he ran four four eight at the Combine. Experienced, experienced player in the SEC the last two years. 18 PBUs, former track star, converted receiver. Look at his PBUs the past season. PBU, press man slant against Jamar Chase. PBU, slot fade, press man against Devontae Smith. Press man slant against Van Jefferson. Literally a who's who kind of a uh, – victim list here getting PBUs against some of the top receivers all in press man one of the best man-to-man abilities he's gotten a lot of buzz to maybe slide into the first round I think he's probably one of the first picks off the board on day two but a guy that's going to come and lock down receivers on the outside or potentially even slide into nickel because of that man-to-man ability uh, I've talked with some evaluators who have Igbenogany in the top 20 top 25 players overall in this class so This is a guy with a very, very high ceiling, very competitive, very, very fun player to study. All right, let's go day three for me. I'm going to go deep sleeper, guys. I'm going to go Manny Patterson from Maine. All right, small corner, 5'8", 5'9", 184 pounds. This guy will run around all day. He's got some top-end speed, but uh, I love the way he competes. He's a really impressive athlete and was really productive. 57 pass breakups in 40 starts. He had 22 last year in 2018, yeah. Fran. 22 PBUs and three yeah. picks, so 25 total in one season. And those were his only three picks of his career, so that is going to be a little bit of a, a knock on him. But still, you know, this is a guy that I think has some man-to-man ability. You're just going to knock the size for sure with Manny Patterson. And the one thing with Manny Patterson, uh, Fran, is the reason his buzz kind of died, he tore his ACL this yeah. year. I think it was early in the season. He's actually getting back on his feet and he's able to do some testing. But everybody knew of him going into the summer with his profile and his production. But obviously the injury kind of killed his buzz. Being at the University of Maine, uh, you know, obviously uh, his name just kind of wasn't in the uh, in the news. Well, let's go to most instinctive corner. C-Mac, what are you for day one? So we talked about C.J. Henderson for – you know, man-to-man ability, I'm going with Jeff Okuda from Ohio State for instincts. The unanimous All-American selection is so technically sound and loved his positional workout that we got to see in Indianapolis. But just one penalty, the one thing that stands out among many things with his game, just one penalty last season, played for a number of coordinators there for the Buckeyes. But when you have the ability to play the other team's top receiver 
and you're only committing one penalty throughout the course of an entire season. It shows that you have a good awareness and for all the things that they ask him to do in that Buckeyes defense. So Jeff Okuda was my selection for most instinctive. All right, so C-Mac, I'm going kind of the other way with this. My guy is really grabby. He's really physical. He gets penalties all the time. But that's really a man coverage. It's his zone coverage that he shows those instincts really well on. And that's Reggie Robinson out of Tulsa, who I've been calling the day two version of Jeffrey Okuda. Because when you're looking at corners that are six foot, 200 pounds, can run in the four fours in broad 10 and a half you know, feet, there's only three in this entire draft, Akuda, C.J. Henderson, and Reggie Robinson. And when you put on Reggie Robinson's highlights or his tape or whatever you want to look at, he makes a variety of plays in all different schemes, press man, off man, cover two, and a lot of nice picks and PBUs in that zone coverage where he is clearly has an understanding of route concepts and how offenses are trying to attack him. And I love seeing that in zone letting him pass off receivers, understanding who's trying to attack his area of the field. So uh, he's a player I've compared to Aqib Tlaib or James Bradbury, and I really like his upside. He ran 4-4 at the Combine, Fran. He's 6'1", 200 pounds, broaded 11 feet, really explosive player. You can watch him against Tylen Wallace, Gabriel Davis, James Prochet at SMU, four blocked kicks in his career. 41 games played, 2,500 snaps. I can go on and on here. This is a really good player. So for me, day three, I went with a guy that has really done a nice job throughout the course of the pre-draft process. You know, a, a productive kid. This is Isang Bassi uh, from Wake Forest. From a size standpoint, only 5'9", 191 pounds, but 50 ball disruptions, 45 pass breakups to go with five picks over 40 starts. So this is a guy that has gotten his hands on a lot of footballs, goes to the senior ball, goes down, competes. Uh, I thought he was a little bit up and down, but he competed throughout the entire week. And then he goes to the combine, runs 4-4 flat and jumps out of the gym. Uh, I think when you look at Bassey on film, the instincts, the, his play recognition, his route recognition ability was what stood out most to me about him. So he was my pick for most instinctive player on day three. Hey, Fran, I feel like we see those instincts a lot on these kind of zone and off corners more. Assange Bassi rarely played press man. But I think because of that, they just seem to have a better understanding of everything happening in front of them. I don't know if it's just kind of a visual thing with those off corners. Yeah, I think you know you certainly just have more. There's more sample size to be able to see it. To me, when I look at instincts from a man coverage standpoint, I want to see a guy that can mirror you know at the top of a route, stay in a receiver's hip pocket on you know dig routes and comebacks and things like that. But when you're talking about off coverage, you can see you know he's got everything in front of his field of vision. He's able to make a break on a route in front of him, and you kind of see that a little bit more often. So, C-Mac, we'll go best ball skills day one. Who do you got? So for ball skills, this is one of your boys, Fran. Trayvon Diggs of Alabama. Now, he started his career there in Tuscaloosa as a two-way player, finished with 21 career pass breakups, always around the ball, four career interceptions, long player. There's a player who also could fit in this category, but I'm going to save him for, for our last one. So for ball skills, I went with Trayvon Diggs out of Alabama. Yeah, for my day two pick here, Fran, which I've seen some mock drafts, him sliding into round one here, and that's Utah corner Jalen Johnson, who I think has excellent ball skills in this in this draft. And when I say ball hawk, and I have written down in his notes, this kid is not looking for pass breakups. He has a my ball approach. He has great tracking down the field, really, really tries to take that ball away. And you've seen it with his 21 pass breakups and seven interceptions in his career. So Jalen Johnson in, a, in that really talented uh, Utah Ute defense. 
Yeah, I'm a big fan of the way Jalen Johnson plays the game. Uh, for me, Bryce Hall. You know, this is a guy that was in first-round mocks all through the spring and the summer, broke his leg midway through his senior season, but was always incredibly productive on the football. 43 uh, ball disruptions on 39 starts. He had five picks with 38 PBU. So I think when you're talking about a guy who can find the football, that's one of Bryce Hall's best traits. You know, he's lacking a little bit in terms of uh, top end speed and quickness in and out of breaks, but big kid at 6'1, over 200 pounds, who can go and find the football in the air. Uh, last one for the corners, most competitive, C Mac, day one. Another one of your boys, your friend, uh, someone who we didn't get to see at the Senior Bowl, and that's Jeff Gladney out TCU. Violent tackler, small but plays big. I could have easily gone with him for ball skills because he had 43 career pass breakups there with the Horn Frogs. So I went with Jeff Galadney as the most competitive since he adds all this stuff from the way he plays the game as well as the ability to go get the football. It's similar to how Ben was talking about that my ball philosophy. You see that a lot with Jeff Glad. C-Mac, we're dialed in here. I don't know if we're working off the same Google uh, <laughs> drive sheet right here, but I had Jeff Gladney as well. I thought he was more of in my, you know, day two kind of range there. Physical player will mix it up. Reminds me a lot of the way Jair Alexander came yep. out of University of Louisville a couple years ago. But another guy I'll throw out here is Amik Robertson at a La Tech. Thank I you. That's a good he's one. He's a day two yeah. player. He may squeeze into day three there, but some of the names I've written down, he's undersized. He's 5'9", 185, but he reminds me a lot of a Pac-Man Jones, and he has some plays where he knocks the head off of a couple of receivers on some shallow crosses and over the middle of the field. Experienced player, All-American actually, a second-team All-American at a La Tech, productive player, 14 picks, 34 PBUs. I don't know where he gets drafted, Fran, but a guy that I really like his play profile. Another guy who I really like watching on film for me, day three, Dane Jackson from Pitt, senior starter, went to the senior bowl. He just he reminds me of Jalen Mills. Like everything about him, like the way he carries himself, his competitiveness, uh, his ability to find the football, his toughness downhill. Uh, I really like a lot of what I saw from Dane Jackson on film. So good stuff there, guys. Uh, covered pretty much, I think we covered every position over the last few weeks as we get ready for next week's draft. Let's go now to our mock draft roundup this week. I teased it at the top of the show. Dane Brugler dropped a seven-round mock draft, so he drops the Beast last week. He does a seven-round mock for this week. We're just going to go through these picks real quick, and we'll just kind of respond uh, as we go through. Uh, number one in the first round, Kenneth Murray, the linebacker from Oklahoma, seems to be one of the, the hotter names for the Eagles in a lot of recent mock drafts from Daniel Jeremiah. Uh, we've seen, I believe, Todd McShay. Now you've got Dane Brugler as well. Kenneth Murray is a guy that, to me, like has just grown on me throughout the course of the process. Uh, I love being around him out at the Combine. You know, Ben, I know you've been on, on the Kenneth Murray train for a long time as well. I just love his presence in the middle of the defense there. One of the more impressive stack linebackers with his size, sideline to sideline range, more of a sub-package rusher than a coverage piece. But at 245 pounds, they use him a lot in different twists and blitzes. And if you think you're going to put some third-down scat running back on him and pass protection – Good luck out there. And he's just a really imposing player that I think would be a uh, an upside player and a playmaker in pretty much any defense in the NFL. Second round, he's got the Eagles selecting Jalen Rager, the, who falls from round one and goes to the Eagles at 53. Now, it should be noted that the receivers seem to fall a little bit uh, in this draft with Dane, so it's not, that could be something interesting to follow. But uh, Jalen Rager from TCU falling to the second round. Uh, Eagles scoop him up, the speedster who lined up all, mostly outside but can be used in a lot of different ways. C-Mac, uh, got to be happy if you're able to get Kenneth Murray round one and then to walk away from round two with Jalen Rager. 
you know, you get your quarterback in the defense there. And then I know fans are going to be saying, well, where's the receiver to still get a big play guy who's great yards after the catch, uh, has that outside inside versatility, uh, will high point the ball in the red zone. Just a nice, nice piece. And again, the fact that you don't have to give up additional drafts capital to be able to still sit back and get them would be absolutely phenomenal. And just to bring this full circle, Fran, who was the last guy we took in the first round out of the University of Oklahoma? Uh, that would be Lane Johnson. And that would be. And who is our second-round pick? That would be Zach Ertz. So if we go with a Kenneth Murray and a Jalen Rieger, I could see a similar type of oh, presence like there uh, and being fixtures of this franchise for a long time. I like that a lot. All right, well, let's go to uh, the third round. And uh, Dane is going right after your heart here, Ben. Uh, he goes for Reggie Robinson, the corner from Tulsa. Right there on day two, just like I said, never doubted it for a second. Day two version <laughs> of Jeffrey Okuda, really impressive player, I think would fit right into this defense. Honestly, he seems like he is a mix of everything we kind of had at this position because he has the size of a uh, Rasul Douglas. He has the kind of speed of a Ronald Darby. He has the presence of a Jalen Mills. He has that kind of profile of a Sidney Jones. He's like everything we've had in that position the past couple of years. And to get him in the third round, I think, is one of the steals of the draft. So round four, there's a trio of picks here. James Prochet, the slot receiver, who is very, very productive uh, for SMU. Great hands, savvy route runner as well. Uh, A.J. Dillon, the running back from Boston College, loved the fit there. Uh, I wonder if A.J. Dillon doesn't come off the board by the end of Friday night on day two. And then Geno Stone. Ben, I know you're a fan of Geno Stone as well, the instinctive safety from Iowa. Guys, how do you react to this? Ben, we'll start with you with that trio of picks. Well, Fran, after those first four players, Vico's Kenneth Murray, Jalen Rieger, Reggie Robinson, James Prochet, the next four picks can be Mickey Mouse and Scooby-Doo for all I care. That's a great first four <laughs> picks there. But A.J. Dillon, he's starting to be one of the darlings kind of on day three here because if you need a big bruiser back, is what I call him, between the tackles, short yardage type of guy, there really aren't a lot of, whole lot of backs with size there this are year. Not. Yep. And he's every bit of 245 pounds, ran a really impressive – Four five three reminds me a little bit of the throwback TJ Duckett with the Falcons in the 2000s there. He was a great change of pace player with some good power and kind of breakaway speed there. A guy that I think can take away a lot of the kind of wear and tear for somebody between the tackles. We saw what Jordan Howard did for the Eagles uh, in that midseason stretch where they really kind of hit their stride in the run game and allowing Miles Sanders to be the perimeter back. I think having that kind of thunder and lightning is an important kind of complement system for, for any offense and backfield. I agree with your point that there's the supply and demand. There aren't a lot of big power backs uh, in this draft. So certainly with A.J. Dillon, that could play with him rising up the board a little bit. And certainly him testing the way he did out in Indianapolis will help him as well. To close out these last two picks, C-Mac, I want to go to you for these two. <laughs> uh, again, he went for your guy, round five. He went uh, the edge rusher from North Dakota State, Derek Tusco, a man uh, pulling at C-Max heartstrings uh, in the fifth round. And then Kamal Martin, the, uh, the big physical linebacker from Minnesota in the sixth round. So C-Mac, your reaction there to the final two picks. Look, just if this were the draft hall for the Eagles, I will do the Tootsie slide on TikTok. Okay, that's just how excited I would be to see the Eagles come out uh, with this hall. And I'm a big Tusca fan. We saw him at the Shrine Bowl. High motor, good technician, not an elite athlete. He, re- he reminds me, if you're, if you're an Eagles fan, of like a Stephen Means, a guy who is just going to be a pain in the rear to go against in practice day in and day out because he's going to be going 110% 
all the time. Just love the tenacity he brings to the game. Uh, but just top to bottom for what the Eagles would have accomplished in this draft class, uh, I, I would I would love to be able to channel Dane, Dane Brugler's mind for this. This is this to me would be a great haul, and I'm a huge fan. Well, hold on a second there, C Mac. I have one question. What is a Tootsie slide? <laughs> uh, Drake came up with it. It's a new dance craze that's going out there. So I got I got nothing for it. And C Mac, really fast. I think we all need to kind of go full circle here on Derek Tuska because he played at North Dakota State. He's from South Dakota. He doesn't look the part. But go look into this kid. High school, linebacker, safety, running back, receiver, tight end, long snapper, place kicker, and punter. Five-year starter on the basketball team. Five-year starter on the track and field team. Two-time All-State linebacker. This kid is a ridiculous athlete. I know he was out in South Dakota. We might have to go ask Carson Wentz about him in his North Dakota State days. I'm not sure if they overlap, maybe a season, maybe two. But a really intriguing player. I don't know where he gets drafted, but one of the more fun kind of prospects to dig into. So excellent, excellent stuff there from Dane Brugler. You can follow him on Twitter at DP Brugler. Just excellent stuff all year round, but obviously especially uh, this time of year with the draft just a week away. All right, let's get to the next segment here, guys. It's time now for Pick 6. Now it's time for Pick 6. All right, guys, so this week on Pick 6, six rumors we are buying stock in, and obviously a lot of rumors flying around the NFL landscape at this point, but – Six that we can definitely see happening. And I'll start things off here. Ian Rappaport, Rap Sheet reporting that the Giants are one of the teams up top that are willing to move down in round one. Now, keep in mind, a couple weeks ago, we said Dave Gettleman has never traded back before. I think I might be buying it this year as a possibility. You know, you have all the offensive tackles. I'm really having trouble pegging which tackle I feel is the best fit for him because I feel a lot of those guys. You know, I could see Dave Gettleman going that way. You know, whether you have Jedrick Wills, Tristan Wurst, Makai Becton, Andrew Thomas, all of those guys I feel could be Dave Gettleman type. So, uh, you know, to me, would not rule out, and obviously Isaiah Simmons, you throw him in there as well, would not rule out a trade down uh, from the New York Giants. So I'm definitely buying stock on that one. What's interesting, Fran, is there's also rumblings that they could be in the Derrick Brown market as well. That's it's so absurd. It is, but at the same time, if you know, if that's what he likes to build in the trenches, he figures that he has a versatile piece there. We've talked that they're going to want to improve the pass rush, and he's someone who you know can play both kind of inside and on the edge if you, if you need him to up and down that line. The whole situation there would be very fascinating. But maybe you figure you can trade it back a few spots, you know, get another premium pick to maybe get an offensive tackle late round one, somewhere early day two. And or maybe even package those to go back up for one of these top four if they happen to fall and still have a chance to get Derek Brown. So that's that just looking into why that could be a, a possibility there is, is wildly fascinating. But I can only imagine Giants fans if, if somehow Derek Brown is the guy they go with in, in round one. All right, C-Max, so what's your first one? What rumor are you buying stock in right now? I'm going to go that Justin Herbert will be selected before Tua Tungavailoa. And there's been buzz from Dolphins reporters that they favor Herbert over Tua. You look into the medical background and, you know, the inability for the one of the unique characteristics of this year's draft is the team doctors are not going to be able to examine him. Justin Herbert has been clean throughout the pre-draft process, was, was very good at the senior bowl, showed up well at the, at the combine. This could be a Miami – looking at the like an Alex Smith, Aaron Rodgers situation, I don't buy the notion that 
that two is going to slide too, too far. But at the very least, I'm sort of coming to grips that it looks like Herbert, or I'll buy stock in that Herbert will go in the draft before Tua. I almost made this a bold prediction segment, like six bold predictions, and my bold prediction would have been that Tua falls out of the top 15. The top 15? Yeah, if I'm going to be bold, if I'm going to you know, go out on a limb there, that would have been, that would have been my pick. Uh, ben, you got any rumors for us that you're, uh, you're buying stock in at this point? Well, my first one was going to be the Herbert to Miami that's kind of really gained some steam over the past couple of days. You know, Mike Garofola has reported that Mel Kuyper as well has Herbert going ahead of Tua. And it's just a matter of maybe a scheme fit there and maybe more of a sure thing with this uh, potential offseason coming, you know, with a lot of questions about how much time we're going to have with these prospects to get ready. That's why I just wonder, you know, the current quarterback situations and with this kind of turbulent offseason, if there's a chance maybe one of these teams get a little bit shy about one of these top quarterbacks. And we're seeing more and more kind of interesting buzz towards later the draft. If Tua slides or Jordan Love slides, we saw Daniel Jeremiah mock Jordan Love to the Green Bay Packers at 30, which is a really interesting rumor as well. And that kind of threshold, does that team start to look through the future with a guy that maybe is sitting high on their board at 30? Or do you make one last run at, you know, supplying weapons around Aaron Rodgers, you know, the way Tampa has kind of gone all in with their approach as well at Tom Brady. Uh, you know, I think the moving up aspect is going to be really interesting. And that was going to be my next one for the rumors I'm buying stock in. Uh, Albert Breer from SI.com noted three teams that are interested in moving up, and that's the Tampa Bay Bucks, the Denver Broncos, and the Atlanta Falcons. I'm buying all three. I think that the Bucks, uh, you know, going all in with Tom Brady, hey, if we want to move up and get one of these big tackles to make sure that he's protected or, you know, you want to try and get another one of these receivers, I guess, to add to that receiving core, you know, I think that that will be very, very interesting. Wouldn't be shocked at all by that. Denver, if they decide, hey, you know what, we're a receiver away. We want to make sure we get Jerry Judy to pair uh, with Cortland Sutton uh, to make one of the best receiver combinations in the NFL would not shock me. And the Falcons are always a threat to move up or down. So totally buying that report from Albert Breer. C-Mac, anything uh, extra you want to throw in for yours? So for my second one here, I'm going to go with Brent Sobleski from the Bleacher Report saying that no receivers will be in the top 10 picks this year. And you might be surprised because we keep talking about the big three of Judy, Lamb, and Ruggs. But Sobleski argues, is there one who's really, really worthy of that top 10 selection is there a julio jones in this draft class and you look at probably at least three of the quarterbacks are going to go top 10 these four offensive tackles could all go potentially early then you throw in your Derek brown your isaiah simmons jeff okuda there's a shot that these these wide receivers because of the depth of the class could get pushed back a little bit so i will buy stock in that no receivers will be selected in the top 10 Interesting. Very, very interesting. Uh, ben, uh, what is your, uh, your last one here? Uh, so it's really kind of just a collective thought and kind of rumors and, you know, buzz we're hearing about. So like Yahoo's Eric Eldholm, I just mentioned about, you know, FIU quarterback James Morgan meeting with all these teams after the combine meeting with 14 teams. And he just also noted he sat down with 26 teams at the East West Shrine game. And as we're getting here, and obviously the team visits are dried up and no pro days and things like that, I just wonder how much more value are we putting into these teams that have had time to either coach these players in the All-Star games or meet with the players, whether the Shrine Week, NFLPA, the obviously Senior Bowl, Combine Week that you know some teams didn't even send scouts to this year. 
So now we're starting to dig into who has done their homework up to this point. And I think it's going to be really interesting when you're getting into day three decisions, who do we know and who don't we know? And getting into guys like James Morgans of the world that have now literally met with nearly every team in the NFL, that has interesting value, I think, when we're getting into the late rounds of this very awkward draft in 2020. I feel like we're going to see less guys get drafted that were not at the All-Star Games or the Combine this year than normal. I, you know, Usually we see like – you know, somewhere around 30 guys that were not invited to the combine, you get drafted every year. My guess, my gut is that it's closer to like 10, 12, 15 guys that don't, you know, that were not invited to the combine that are going to get drafted. I, I just, you know. And I'm excited for guys, Fran. I'm excited for like a, a Kevin Davidson at a Princeton or a Mason Fine at a North Texas. You know, maybe somebody that met extra, you know, minutes or an hour with somebody at that East West Shrine game where, you know, there, there was a little bit more time to meet and, you know, maybe somebody fell in love with one of these kids and maybe somebody sees Mason Fine as a, as a Nick Marshall and can maybe play defensive back or a wildcat quarterback. And I just think we're going to get a couple of those stories this year into day three, into priority free agency, uh, that it's a lot about familiarity and, who do we know versus who don't we know in this draft? Yeah, that's, a, that's a great point. All right, guys, let's wrap this show up. It's time now for Draft Mailbag. Now it's time to hear from you, the fans, in the Draft Mailbag. So as always, the best way to support this show, look, the draft is right around the corner. So if you've got mock drafts, if you've got questions, now is the time. We've got a couple more episodes that we're going to knock out. Uh, before the draft gets here. All right, right now we're going to go with Pete Mathan. That's a five-star review saying, check out this mock draft. We'll buzz through it real quick, guys. Uh, and at the end, I'll ask you your thoughts. Justin Jefferson in round one, he, he said, great all-around receiver for Carson Wentz to grow with. Julian Aquara, the defensive end from Notre Dame, saying a speedy DN that can drop in coverage and be an overall good fit. Tyler Beatus, the Wisconsin center, said if he lasts to 103, he's a great pickup. He can play guard and maybe even back up a tackle as well if we really need him to. Round four, Antonio Gibson can play in the slot at running back and maybe a good player for the goal line. He can also help out on special teams. I agree there. J.R. Reed in the fourth round, well-tackling safety who can play decent coverage and be a good ball hawk. And then Reggie Robinson. We've talked about him a little bit on this podcast already. The corner from Tulsa. I think he'll be the steal of the draft. This dude can play corner really well. He's not really the Jim Schwartz type of corner, but he is a playmaker. Fifth round, John Hightower, the speedster uh, out of Boise State. Said he's got great outside speed and great on the go routes, but inconsistent hands. But if he lasts this long, it's worth drafting and developing him because you can't teach speed and then lastly Tanner Muse the uh, safety linebacker from Clemson expecting teams to use him at linebacker he would be a great addition so guys uh, I'll see Mac I'll go to you first just big takeaway here from uh, Pete's mock draft look I, I love the fact that you get three playmakers for the offense with Justin Jefferson who's been widely mocked to the Eagles at 21 Antonio Gibson versatile with the ability to play running back and wide receiver talked a lot about in this podcast and he mentioned the the speed element with Hightower, but I'm going to look at the second round pick, which is a spot where the Eagles need to infuse some youth. And going into this season, right now, Vinnie Curry's a free agent. He played about 400 quality snaps for this team last season. They're going to need somebody to to pick up the, the pieces there. Now, they have some guys in-house who potentially could do that, Gennard Avery and and Sharif Miller, last year's fourth-round pick. But Brandon Graham, obviously, 2010 first-round pick. He's getting up there. I would not be surprised to see the Eagles address edge rusher. And I know it's not a very deep class. So it would be intriguing to see if the Eagles were to pull the trigger with an early round selection. 
So next one here from uh, Ed Media left a five star review uh, saying great podcast. I listen to all year round. Uh, these guys put so much work and give you some great content. Appreciate that, Ed. Coming into this year's draft, I feel like I know a ton of players, not just the guys taken in the first round. Number one, the first round, he said not no one was worth taking at twenty one. So I traded out for a first and a fourth uh, for two second rounders from the Colts. So he ended up with three second round picks. A.J. Terrell, the Clemson corner, Brandon Ayuk, the wide receiver from Arizona State, and Kyle Duggar, the safety from Lenore Ryan. So uh, I, I love when teams have a bunch of second-round picks. I always walk away from that thing and like, man, they got, they got a few good players. And that certainly that would be a very, very fun haul uh, in the second round if you come out with those three. Third round, Chase Claypool, the wide receiver from Notre Dame. Then you've got Devin Duvernay from the receiver from Texas. Reggie Robinson, again, very, very popular. Ben, I think you've like uh, – the third third straight mock draft. You can't see C Mac, but I'm I'm Tootsie shuffling over here, whatever your dance was. <laughs> if once Reggie Robinson like that signing bonus, he's got to cut you some cut you a check here, Ben. At some point, then Davion Taylor, the linebacker from Colorado, and Alex Taylor, the athletic tackle from South Carolina State. Ben, uh, your thoughts overall on this mock? Well, just looking at the past two mock drafts, I just love the offensive haul. You know, here going Ayuk, Chase Claypool, Devin DuVarnay, you know, kind of a, a speedy returner. Chase Claypool, obviously more of a big, you know, uh, oversized receiver, but an explosive player that can play above the rim. Devin DuVarnay just behind Justin Jefferson in nearly every slot category with track speed, also has uh, spent some time in the backfield. But, you know, that previous mock draft, again, Gibson, John Hightower, Justin Jefferson, that's 4-4, 4-3, 4-4 speed. And I think this Philadelphia Eagles offense can use a jolt of speed and a little bit of a youth movement to surround Carson Wentz with and really kind of threaten opposing defenses and get ready to put up 30, 35 points a game and light up this scoreboard in 2020 because Carson Wentz can use some weapons around him and this offense is ready to go. It's a great point. We got a couple more here. Uh, linebacker questions left a five-star review saying, thanks for keeping the content coming in the time of quarantine. It helps me and I'm sure others in taking our minds off of what is going on right now. Uh, I know it would be good to add linebacker depth in this draft. There are some guys that I have seen going middle to late day two and early day three that really seem to fit what the Eagles are looking for with an athletic linebacker. Could they push for a starting role early? What do you guys think of players like Akeem Davis-Gaither, who's from Appalachian State, Jordan Brooks from Texas Tech, uh, Malik Harrison from Ohio State, Logan Wilson from Wyoming, and then Willie Gay Jr. from Mississippi State. Also, could you see us taking a shot on a Tanner Muse out of Clemson and turning him into a linebacker similar to what Thomas Davis was or what we did a couple of years ago with Nate Gary? So, obviously, a lot of players there. I'd like to, you know, maybe each of you guys, if you want to maybe pick one, uh, C-Mac or Ben, I'll rather, I'll, I'll go to you first. So who's the guy from that group that you would pick and kind of break down for us? One, no, we're taking them all, Fran, all right? <laughs> the interesting thing collectively about those six linebackers, man, this is all different shapes and sizes. Like the undersized Akeem Davis-Gaither, Jordan Brooks looks like a fullback, you know, playing linebacker. Malik Harrison looks like a tight end playing linebacker at 6'4", 250. Logan Wilson's kind of a, a safety in that role. Willie Gay, explosive player all different shapes and sizes here. So I think the Eagles and their fans really kind of need to put together a pros and cons. And what do you want out of that off ball linebacker position? What do we ask them to do? What don't we ask them to do? Because you can't get everything in these players. So I think finding out what their skill sets are and what this defense needs, is it a base thing 
Do we feel comfortable with TJ Edwards as a base linebacker, or is this really a sub package position? And it's the future of the nickel and dime and that linebacker position in sub packages. So a lot of different shapes and sizes and talent at the linebacker, at the linebacker position in this draft. C-Mac, uh, any, anyone there stand out? I was going to say the, the Malik Harrison, he's someone who I thought had a great workout at the combine, you know, I like the compa- the comparison or, or the analogy that, that Ben put out tight end out there, because even though he's a bigger linebacker, he's a very fluid mover. We got to see him at the senior bowl as well. So of those guys, I think Malik Harrison is someone who's kind of lost in the shuffle because everybody's been, you know, touting Willie Gay and, and the athleticism that he brings. Same with Davis Gaither and Jordan Brooks and, and Wilson as well. But I think Malik Harrison's a little bit lost in the shuffle here, a uh, little bit more of an old school throwback but still I think has uh the necessary athleticism to play all three downs in the NFL and one guy I'll mention it was Logan Wilson you know from my Wyoming you're talking about a big long kid I mean he's 6'2 he's 240 uh 32 and a half inch long arms high school receiver and defensive back and I think that that shows up on film he's got excellent ball skills I've seen him run down the field down the seam uh with receivers down the slot uh, you know, and played the ball in the air, was really productive. 53 starts in his career. He's been a longtime starter out there for the Cowboys. And this is a guy that uh, has just got a nose for the football. He's consistently productive both against the run and the pass. Um, you know, it does a lot of different things for that defense. So I look at Logan Wilson as a really, really intriguing player moving on to the next level. Great question there. Last one uh, from Valhalla24, left a five-star review process question here if you could shed some light on how the scouting process works does the general manager tell the college scouts positions of need for them to scout or do scouts just scout players and tell the gm players that fit and how much does the head coach play in the process uh fran is slowly turning me into an eagles fan well so obviously not an eagles fan there but appreciate the comment appreciate the rating and the question there uh valhalla Uh, i'll jump on this one guys it's much more the second scenario that you laid out you know the, the area scouts they're not taking position. This is, you know, I want to say this is for all 32 teams, but I would say most teams in the NFL are operating where the college scouts go out and they're going to evaluate everybody in their area that's, you know, that they deem to be a, an NFL worthy prospect. So they're going to watch all of those players. They're going to evaluate them. They're going to write up reports, strengths, weaknesses, how they fit for their team. You know, whatever the value system that that team uses, their grading scale, they're going to go through all of the paces with that player. And then it's up to the general manager and the directors of player personnel, all of the executives at the top to figure out, okay, is this a guy that we're going to fit if whether, whether we're a best player available or whether we're picking for need or whatever it is, they're going to figure that out. But you're relying on your scouts to go out and just evaluate everybody in that area. And that it's their job to be able to come back and say, here are the 300 players that I've evaluated this fall. We do with this information what you must. And then as far as how the coaching staff's used – Every team is a little bit different. You know, sometimes in some uh, organizations, the coaching staff has big voice and others, it's a little bit of a smaller voice. I think the best general managers take as much information as possible and use it to their advantage. They're going to talk to everybody in the building, get as many eyeballs on players as possible, you know, whether that's on film or in person and just getting to meet them and get a sense of them and their personality and how they would fit in the building. All the best teams to me use the all as many resources Look, it's, a, it's an inexact science, as we said. So the more information you can get, the better. And that's just the way I look at it. I don't know if you guys have anything to tack on to the end of that. Uh, I, I, the only thing I want to say is the one thing with the, uh, the quarantine and, and not being able to have the pro days this year that's going to be intriguing is 
the college scouts are using the usually use the pro days to start getting ahead on next year's class to start finding out about the guys for the 2021 it's a great point draft class so that is going to be something that it is going to be very interesting to see how will they make up the time for that but pretty much the scouts are already going to transition into 2021 mode at this point because by and large the the, the hay is in the barn for for 2020 except for maybe finalizing the draft boards yeah the only thing i'll say fran is we all know each scouting department has like a manual and kind of a philosophical mission statement for the organization but heading into the draft it's the teams that know who they are and what we're trying to do and how we're trying to win that i think are going to be the most successful because you have to know what meal are we trying to cook? And then we can get the right ingredients for it. And then everybody is happy along down the line in the kitchen. It's the guys that try to be a little too versatile, a little too multiple, that they don't have a true identity. Then on draft day, it's kind of a Rolodex of a selection. So I think the teams that are really focused with their own identity. And sometimes you really do have to self-scout and figure out where did we have to improve, what works, what doesn't work. And I think the teams that really know themselves and are honest with themselves about who they are and what they need are the ones that are collectively top to bottom, coaches, scouts, GMs, players, position coaches, whatever, all on the same page and all working towards the same goal. It's a great point. I think when you have that kind of synergy between your personnel staff and your coaching staff, that's where, really, uh, that's where you're cooking. And I think that some teams, Fran, the ones that really cross-train behind the scenes – like, you know, the Chiefs and the Eagles and the Patriots and the Packers that like to have, you know, that rotation of bodies that you may be a position coach one year, a scout the next year, and vice versa. Just making sure you have that cohesion with every layer of the organization and that your scouts aren't segmented from your coaches and all of a sudden you try to bring everybody together for two months out of the year and it's kind of a crapshoot of ideas and a think tank. I think the ones that really understand and diversify their own personnel are the healthiest organizations. 100%. Well, guys, it's going to be a crazy week for us next week here on the Journey of the Draft podcast. Hope everybody out there enjoyed this episode, and we will see you next week here on the Journey of the Draft podcast, driven by AAA.